Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Every two weeks, Michael and I release a podcast episode where we tell someone else's stories. Except that's not quite true. As we discuss every note on an album or labor over every second of a concert recording, we also talk about ourselves. It's one way music becomes more than just art. Billy Joel's story becomes part of our stories, which becomes part of each other's, and ultimately a narrative of its own, all told in a language that everyone speaks without realizing it. Maybe you've heard that musicians have conversations when they perform together. Or consider it this way. Michael and I went decades without knowing the other existed. Then, almost four years ago, we spoke for the first time as if we'd known each other all along. That's what makes the arts special. They explore ideas too big for our words to contain, but in a way we can all understand. And for my solo episode this year, I'm exploring this idea further. I'm starting with two songs where I play drums. One is a studio recording of a new work. The other is a live performance from the Great American Songbook. Next, I'm speaking with other podcasters and presenters about the stories they explore in movies and literature. You'll hear from Dan Colon and Mike Manzi, the hosts of the Monsters That Made Us podcast. They started off discussing the classic universal horror films and are now back with new episodes that take that topic a step further. Finally, I'm speaking with Edward Pettit, As the senior manager of public programs at the Rosenbach Museum here in Philadelphia, he launched the online BiblioVenture series in 2020. Participants from all over the world read a classic novel or body of work in small parts over a few months. And each week, Edward leads a curated and somewhat interactive online discussion featuring subject experts and artifacts from the Rosenbach's collection. There's no great cosmic revelation in all this. I make no hypotheses and draw no conclusions. That's the nature of trying to tell a tale this big. The best I can do is present one small part of it and invite others to do the same. So first up is a recording I played on over the summer. The song is called Insane by Della Chase and it was released in October. The session date is special to me for a few reasons. Most notably, I arrived at the studio a few hours after my son, my youngest child, Lewis, graduated high school. And midway through the session, I ducked into a soundproof booth to take a phone call where I accepted a job offer. As for the song itself, it's a credit to the producer, Tom Conran. He and Della collaborated on the demo of the song, but due to extenuating circumstances, the musicians, including the artist, couldn't all be in the studio together. But the band hadn't heard the song before the sessions, let alone rehearsed it. Despite this, Tom communicated his vision for it piece by piece to one or two of us at a time as we recorded our parts. The result is a fully realized song and unified performance, despite us never all being in the same room together to create it. I need you like
Next is a classic song that I added to the setlist for my Billy Joel tribute band to go in between Say Goodbye to Hollywood and New York State of Mind. Earlier this year, we lost Tony Bennett, the ambassador of the Great American Songbook. I discovered Tony's music in high school. My father and grandfather introduced me to a ton of great jazz albums. Birth of the Cool by Miles Davis, Benny Goodman, Carnegie Hall, 1939, and Tony Bennett's MTV Unplugged album from the 90s. I got my own copy of MTV Unplugged in 11th grade, and I still remember how excited I was the first time I heard the opening crashes of Old Devil Moon kick off the album. Two years later, my father, grandfather, and I went to see Tony live in Atlantic City. The show started just as the album I knew did, with a vibrant rendition of Old Devil Moon. But before it started, a photographer was moving through the audience, quickly trying to make a buck. When he asked if he could take our picture, my grandfather quickly said, No thank you, our wives cannot know we're here. We all had a good laugh, but I'd give a lot for that photo today. But the thing about music is you get to create your own keepsakes. Earlier this year, I recorded with a small jazz group. We'd often perform Old Devil Moon, but we weren't sure if we'd track that one. But I pushed for it because it was one of my favorites. I stopped by my cousin's house on the way home, wondering how that song in particular came out. While I was there, the engineer emailed us some rough, unmixed takes. That's what you're hearing right now. Without telling my cousin what the song was, I played Old Devil Moon for him. And when he immediately said, this reminds me of Grandpa's house, I knew we'd done it right. But as much as that song means to me, we had to choose a different one when it came to honor Tony's legacy at our shows. This live recording from August spotlights Alexis Parente on vocals and features a guest performance by pianist Chris Pastore. is somehow sadly gay. The glory that was wrong is of another day. I've been terribly alone and forgotten in Manhattan. I'm going home to my city Ooh. 
So Moving Beyond Music is my conversation with Dan Colone and Mike Manzi. Over 32 episodes, their podcast, The Monsters That Made Us, celebrates and explores the classic universal horror films, including Dracula, Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, The Mummy, and The Wolfman. After nearly three years, Dan and Mike took a short break from recording. Their latest episode, released just before Halloween this year, kicked off a new season that expands beyond the classic Universal movies. What was the inspiration for forming The Monsters That Made Us? So I've been part of the Cage Club podcast network, uh, the network that we're on uh, for a little while, just kind of helping out with social media. You know, I just kind of wanted to do something to um, help out some friends, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe get some experience doing like some social marketing kind of stuff. After a while, I just kind of got the itch that I wanted to do a podcast, but I wasn't sure what to do a podcast on, you know, I just kind of thought it'd be fun to do. And um, I knew that whatever subject I chose, I'd be doing it for a long time. So I didn't just, or I could potentially do it for a long time, right? So I didn't just willy nilly choose a topic and then, you know, start a podcast. I guess in 2020, like when everybody was was locked inside uh, during COVID, um, I thought, all right, well, this is the time to really start thinking seriously about what I want to do because um, i going out of my mind with boredom. I need to channel that creative energy somehow. You know, I love movies. I love all movies. Um, but the things that I keep coming back to are horror movies. Up to this point, I think I had already kind of been established as Mike's um, unofficial horror consultant on uh, his show, Third Time's a Charm. Mm-hmm. So I thought, all right, let's do a horror podcast. And then, you know, where do you start? You know, I went back to my childhood. You know, where did, where did horror movies start for me? And it was the Universal Monsters. And I thought, I don't know of any podcasts that are just about universal monsters. So let me create something that I would want to listen to myself. So I didn't want it to just be me. I like the dynamic of having a co-host. Also, I needed an editor. Uh, Mike and I had had experience doing podcasts before. And so he was the natural choice. And so I pitched the idea to him and, and he agreed to do it. As Dan mentioned, like, yeah, he he had guest hosted not just on my show, but a lot of shows on the network over the years. So uh, it was sort of like the natural next step I felt for him to uh, develop a show of his own and run it. I don't know if you remember this, Dan, but he and I had um, attempted podcasting before when we were in college. It was a very short run show. Yep. I believe it was called like Viewer Discretion or something. So like we kind of had this history of of wanting to do a show already. So this was a good way to attempt that again. And then, yeah, I think like our our shared love of old movies, like Turner classic movies uh, and horror movies, uh, it all kind of came together with this project. Uh, and yeah, it was just another great way to like spend some time with a good friend and like try to produce some good content. You know, I saw a meme recently that said, uh, dude, we should start a podcast is the dude, dude, we should start a band. <laughs> yeah, that, that tracks. I, I can tell you in my in my personal life, I've uh, often joked with friends like, oh, man, we should start a podcast about that. Well, no, this isn't the only one I do. I do two now. But yeah, it, ha- it comes up a lot in conversation. It, you know, most of them never actually happen. But you're right. It is. It is very much similar to the uh, let's start a band. Stepping away from the from the podcasting for a moment, for the Universal horror movies in particular, what do you think it was that drew you to them? Even uh, when you know when you first saw them when you were younger. You know, when I was younger, I didn't really kind of absorb these in the same way. Obviously, and I think um, sort of through pop culture and stuff, uh, I learned about these monsters. Like we talk about uh, in early episodes, how we sort of uh, first heard of them, and I think it was more through like you know, toys and cartoons and like commercials and stuff. And they were sort of, I don't know, coming back in a way, I guess, and trying to compete with the new monsters of like Freddie and Jason and, and Pinhead and all that during my childhood. Uh, but 
those movies later, I was drawn to them because they were like the originals. They were quite literally some of like the first um, like talking movies like Dracula, you know, it was mm-hmm. one of, you know, it was a very early talkie. Uh, I was in college, very interested in craft of the craft of film and filmmaking. So I wanted to know, like in the early days, how did they pull a lot of this stuff off? And my just general love of horror and all of this kind of stuff growing up, I appreciated the history of it, you know, so I wanted to learn about it more and and observe it and um, be able to recall it when necessary. And, and so, yeah, it's just I, it's a, like a love of film and filmmaking. You can really see it in those early days. You know, some may see may say that you see the seams, but like to me, that's kind of the fun and, and the tricks and the way they pull it off is kind of like, you know, the magic trick of early filmmaking. And later, just the, the the ingenuity of what they do with the creatures and the monsters and the new monsters that they come up with and the and the story and the folklore and the canon and all of that kind of stuff. Like it really uh, it's rich and it's fun. And so uh, going back to this, there was a lot more to like rediscover and uh, mine again and sort of uh, find for the first time. So I don't know. I just always felt like this stuff, you know, has a lot of rewatch value to it. It's been with us pretty much most of our lives. Yeah, and I, and I grew up with um, a couple of the uh, the original movies on VHS. To this day, I cannot remember like why we had them. Like my parents weren't necessarily fans of these movies, and so and, and as a kid, I'm not necessarily saying, "Hey, can you buy me a copy of Frankenstein?" I don't know where they came from, but you know, as a kid, they were horror movies that I could handle. They're not scary by modern standards, right? So. They were something that I could watch and enjoy without being too scared. I became a proper horror fan around college. And that's mostly because I started to recognize that horror movies are like where creativity is king, right? Like these these low budget movies have to get real creative, you know, to be effective. And, you know, I, I started watching Evil Dead and, uh, you know, Friday the 13th and kind of going back and and watching all these movies that I had just never considered watching before because horror was quite honestly scary to me. And then once I got through that and started to enjoy the the horror of it, I was able to appreciate the the craft that went into it. And then I started to go back into those uh, those early universal monsters and in film history as I worked my way through film school. Yeah, it's it's funny to hear other people talk about it this way, because, you know, my two thoughts as you guys were talking was that you know, I was the same way. I was a kid and, you know, you knew about Freddie and you knew about Jason, but you weren't going to watch him when you were five years old. So I think that's how it happened where I think my father or somebody was like, well, why don't you watch Frankenstein? And, you know, so we rented that and then it was Bride of Frankenstein and the Wolfman. And I barely remember them, but, the, you know, the same thing, they get ingrained. And, you know, it's funny about the seams. I felt like when I started rewatching them a few years ago, I saw the seams more in the storytelling. Like I was mm. just seeing these, not plot holes, but these jumps in the plot where like something seems to happen in a day, but in reality, it feels like it should have happened over a month. And mm-hmm. and those seems sort of disappeared once I, once I got used to it, once you, you figured out the speed of the movie mm. and you were like, okay, well, this is the ride we're along for. Like, we're going to, we're going to deal with the fact that like somehow, you know, the monster has been terrorizing people for years, but it was just animated yesterday. And we're, you yeah. know, we're just going to go with that emotion too. Yeah. Those two things that I think are pretty integral to why these are successful is like they're they're for everybody 
like it's a completely open audience you know children and adults can watch this and they're quick you know a lot of them are super short and they're action-packed like a lot happens you know every scene is very rich so those are some very interesting points there so let's dig a little deeper what are your guys favorites the last we talked about this we both agreed that the invisible man was our favorite monster Uh, that i don't know if that's changed on your end mike it's it hasn't changed for me i can tell you that yeah i think Overall, yeah, he's probably the most dangerous, the most unsettling, and has maybe the highest body count. So I think, yeah, yeah, <laughs> he still um, reigns. He reigns. <laughs> <laughs> as far as uh, the movies, um, Frankenstein is still my number one. For a long time, it was Frankula. Uh, I'm sorry, Frankenstein and Dracula. If, and but Frankula would have Frankula been Frankula would have been an amazing <laughs> movie. Yeah. Um, no, for a long time it was Frankenstein and Dracula, and then over the course of doing the show, I really started to gain a new appreciation for the Mummy. That rose up in my in my ranking. So I think currently my top two are The Invisible Man and Frankenstein, with the Mummy in a, a close third. I really just mm. appreciated what they did with that with that movie as a kid you know i'm watching the mummy and i'm like okay this is okay but where's the mummy right <laughs> um I had, to, I had to become an adult to really appreciate the story they were trying to tell which because it's a romantic story right it's not yeah. really um the sort of mummy movie a kid might be interested in even though i had watched it a bunch as a kid knowing it was a horror movie and like oh okay i get to watch this i still didn't really appreciate it and and now uh i think mike and i both really appreciate the mummy more than we used to before the show yeah, most definitely. Like, I think we were talking to someone about a, a little while ago and doing like a tier list of these. But um, I brought up The Mummy as sort of like, I feel it's sort of one of the ultimate universal movies. Like, it's got all the elements in place perfectly, like early on that um, are sort of going to be uh, like repeated or referenced later. And I just, it's very sophisticated. Like, I find it very haunting. Very, There's one of my favorite scenes in all of the Universal Monster movies in it when the mummy shows Princess Anaka, who's been reincarnated, her dead corpse in front of her. Like, it's very wild stuff. Uh, like, so yeah, like the mummy, I praise that movie very much. And again, like Dan, Dan's right, like originally I watched it, I kind of thought it was too slow, too boring. But in retrospect, and especially going through them when we were watching them for the show, like I gained like a tremendous appreciation for that one. Like just visually gorgeous, like everything is just very on point for that. It feels like, you know, this is what we're going to be going for from now on. The creature from the Black Lagoon definitely like bumped up a level even though it was one of the much later ones in the series i was like wow like uh, they were still able to create this lore and this monster he like immediately just felt like right at home with the rest of everybody else so like that was a tremendous achievement like even though they were on their way out they went out with like this bang as far as one that's like might not be as popular or recognizable that i've been championing ever since we watched it is dracula's daughter Mm, yeah. uh, you know I, <laughs> there's just something about that again it's it's very haunting it's very melancholy it's you know the sequel to dracula it's got a lot going for it. it's not a perfect movie by means like there's a lot of faults it's it's got a lot of holes in it and stuff but i feel like what it's going for is is very good and uh it's still very strong for what it is yeah, yeah it's think, it's got yeah. like a like a james whale sort of thing with the way it plays with sexuality right you're not used mm-hmm. to seeing that sort of thing in a yeah an old monster movie and we really loved uh dracula's daughter for that reason you know just to see right. a little bit of a um what's the word i'm looking for like the overtones 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's risky, yeah. right? It's mm -hmm. it's it's a little ballsy, and uh, I think that's what I like so much about it is that they were willing to take that risk. Yeah, yeah, and they were on the the cusp of like the the code was coming or the code was in place, so they had to be you know a little more sort of cryptic about things. But the context is definitely there. You know that uh, they're they're playing with like the the concept of the outsider and sexuality and all that stuff through yep. the universal monster. So that, that, that was a big thing. The director, I forget who it was, but they really were going for a James whale. It's like a B side James whale. They had the, the, what's all this then police officer. And then a little <laughs> bit of that, you know? Yeah. But it's set up like a, like a, like a noir, almost like a detective film. It's interesting. You, you brought up noir because we would end up bringing that up a lot when it comes mm -hmm. to like the monster and the horror and like horror versus crime and how similar and how, often they blend and like especially with stuff like um the wolfman and later invisible man movies and stuff like they're straight up like noir films at points so like yeah it's it's awesome how that crosses over yeah. yeah, it's it's sort of like um, how some of my favorite horror movies aren't uh, approached as horror movies by the filmmaker. To use a modern example, like Ari Aster makes uh, like family dramas that have horror elements that brought that are brought into them. Or uh, William Friedkin, when he made The Exorcist, you know, he wasn't really concerned about the supernatural, like gross parts of The Exorcist. He was concerned about this story about this little girl and her relationship with her mother. Right. Like, so. Yeah. It became a horror movie after the fact. And a lot of these old, old universal monster movies are kind of film noirs or whatever. And then you've got a monster in there also. That sort of uh, flexibility is what part of what makes them last. So jumping back to sort of the technical end for a moment, you had both worked for the Case Club Podcast Network and you were thinking about doing this in college. Podcasting still is such a, a, a new medium, really. What were your uh, backgrounds in media before this and what was the learning curve like mike uh co-founded the cage club podcast network so mike i'll let you take the lead on this one <laughs> <laughs> yeah it goes a, a little further back than that i mean honestly like trying to think about it's getting your questions earlier and like kind of looking around my room a bit like out of high school i attempted to be like a dj you know and i was like oh I'll be a radio dj but that's not the kind of dj i ended up becoming it was more of like a um i was like a hip-hop dj you know like in, in the, the bars and clubs and i would do dj battles and things like that but like originally i was like oh i'll go on the radio and so i went to the now defunct connecticut school of broadcast to i think our most famous alma mater the the guy who went there was Artie lang at one point i learned a bunch of like <laughs> yeah. kind of useless stuff but like some skills the thing i really picked up on was editing and video editing and so I ended up quitting my job at a record store and going to Ramapo, where I ended up meeting Dan, ended up going to college, meeting Dan, majoring in like film stuff. Uh, originally, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to I'll do editing and, and video editing. But it all turned to like directing and screenwriting. And and that kind of got forgotten. But Dan and I forged a friendship. I also met uh, another friend there, Joey Lewandowski, who Flash forward to 2015, he and I co-found the Cage Club Network by reviewing every single Nicolas Cage movie that was in existence at the time. That show's still going. We still do every new Cage movie. There's been about five already this year, including Renfield, which we'll get to. The network had been developing over you know years. It just kind of grew like wildfire. Uh, friends from college and their friends started shows and guesting on other shows, and they started shows. And it just before we knew it, we had like 25, 30 shows. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that kind of 
brings us up to speed, at least me. I mean, I mentioned earlier, Dan and I in college, we had attempted to do something, but I really feel like the technology wasn't there. You know, like we didn't know how to get it out and like how to host it or any of that kind of stuff, I feel. So it was all this kind of like trial and error kind of stuff. I don't really handle any of that technical stuff. And now it's just like for us, I feel like pointing and clicking and and that kind of thing. It'll be 10 years soon for me. And uh, I'm still learning new things every year, you know, like technical issues or switching, switching from, you know, what were we on before we were on Discord and now, and then we were recording on Zencaster and now we're on Zoom. So like, we're constantly just changing and evolving and I'm always just trying to catch up. Like Mike, I went to school to study film with the aspiration of, uh, you know, working on a film set one day. My dream was to be directing movies that didn't really pan out for me and that's okay. But at the end of the day, I still just love talking about movies and having been invited to be a guest on multiple shows on this network and seeing how they do it, it gave me a real sense of what was possible, right? And suddenly, okay, I love chatting with these guys about these movies. Uh, I should have my own show. And then when the time came, when I was like, I want to, I want to do this, you know, I was, I was very uh, fortunate to know Mike and Joey who had already kind of, you know, laid a lot of that groundwork uh, if I had to start from scratch from absolutely nothing, I don't know that I would necessarily have any idea what to do. So I'm very grateful to to them for having uh, sort of forged that path and given me the opportunity to have a show on the network. Well, two shows on network now. For me, it came out of this desire to uh, scratch that creative itch, right? I'm not making movies, but I get to talk about them and I get to, you know, share my enthusiasm for those movies. Also, having studied film, you know, when we talk about these movies and how they were made and, you know, I get to talk about, you know, different Technicolor processes and uh, and and whatnot as we got into, uh, you know, The Phantom of the Opera, that one episode, you know, like that's the stuff I really like to talk about and having some understanding of how it works. I like to share that with the audience as best I can. Now, we're getting into um, the modern era and there's going to be a lot of, you know, computer effects work and stuff like that, stuff that is completely beyond my scope. Um, so I'm not going to be able to like go as in depth, unfortunately, but, you know, it's still fun to learn about and talk about. Um, so I definitely think that uh, having had that education really, uh, you know, it helps me um, do this show in a way that's effective. When were you guys in college? What years? You graduated in 09. We graduated 09. Yeah. Oh, okay. I went to film school at Temple. I started in 1999 and I, I maintain it was the worst time to be in film school because mm. you weren't using film stock anymore. Yeah. But. Adobe Premiere was just would crash constantly. You could only get like maybe three minutes of editing. You had to buy the jazz disc, which was like one gig, cost Ugh. you a hundred dollars. Goffy, yeah. you dropped it, the data would actually scatter. And there was no YouTube. There was no way to actually get this shit out. Fast forward to like 2010, my daughter picks up my phone and makes a little movie with her Barbies. And I'm like, dude, you have more firepower than I had. Yeah, we shot on mini DV. And oh, so even even before that, I think we were the last class to cut on VHS tapes. Like we had yes. this oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. index <laughs> in the back and like one teacher yelled at us for using them. <laughs> and I was like, well, we don't know how to digitize this stuff yet. Yeah, we were literally learning analog editing at a time when we all kind of looked at each other and said, no one's doing this anymore. Why are we still <laughs> learning analog editing? I don't want to blame other things for why my career didn't pan out the way I had hoped, but I think some part of it might have had to do with that being in a weird transitional time. You know, yeah. we're we're still learning the old technology. There's new stuff coming. And um, I could see like this new media emerging as we graduated. So it was like maybe if we had just graduated a few years later, you know, we might have been better prepared. Who knows? Who knows? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember making like stupid short films in the dorm, like, you know, just like little 30 second skits that we came up with. And then you, you do it for an hour or two and you're like, well, why are we doing this? Nobody's ever going to see it unless, you know, unless we get so high that nobody can get off the couch with the trap <laughs> and put it on. You know, now you throw this stuff on TikTok or YouTube and you're a star. We depended on the people who were too high to get off the couch when I was president <laughs> of the TV station. Uh, yeah, like at least we had we had the TV network at school. So you knew that people in the dorms could see your stuff. You're like, oh, my gosh, people would walk down the hall sometimes and be like, you made that movie that plays like all the time on the TV, right? That's what's been fun about podcasting and especially something like uh, the Cage Club Network where, you know, you have an idea and there's a platform built for it. You can just follow your whim. You don't have to worry as much about that infrastructure. Joey and Mike have been uh, really gracious landlords. I don't think there's a single topic of discussion that they would, uh, you know, turn down. You know, most of it is is movies, but not exclusively. So, yeah, it's it's been awesome. Let's jump back to the movies. Mike, you mentioned Renfield. So we actually got two Dracula movies this year. I think it's the first time in a while where do seem to have some roots in the 1931. I'm going to hope to see Demeter before Halloween added to my Hooptober list. I'm curious to see which chapter they make a movie of next, because <laughs> honestly, though, we kind of spoilies a little bit. Like we have a new episode about Dracula 79 coming out soon. Mm. And that's today. That's today. And right. we sort of go a little into the one chapter. Dan, were they the the beautiful girl? The 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 uh, boofer lady, the boofer lady. You know, I would love to see a whole movie just about that. And about yeah. how that that week of how she's haunting London or wherever, uh, right. and just that would be a nice you know, sort of just vampire story there. And you, plus, you got Van Helsing in there. You know, you bring him in at the in the midpoint, and he kills her at the end. And then it's like, all right, on to Dracula. Like uh, credits. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah, just sort of piece it together like that, which would harken back to the book since it's all created as found media anyway i don't really hate this idea of expanding upon stuff we didn't have time for you know or things you skip over i feel like these young adult movies kind of splitting the novels in half towards the end created like this ability to just say like hey let's just expand everything and so if you find something good about it i'm down so i have ho high hopes about this last voyage of the demeter movie yet I'm into the concept. Yeah, it yeah. looked incredible. Um, I know the reviews were a bit a bit uh, mixed, but I'm really optimistic. You know, it looked wonderful. And the director, from what I understand, has a lot of uh, really good credibility. Yeah, you know, not to give anything away, like I, I watched it and then I read the reviews and I felt like I could see both sides of it. And I would say optimistically, any of the criticisms could be taken as it's, it's the first one. Let's see where it goes from here. It's good. You know, it's it's got a good foundation there. So what did you guys think of Renfield? I guess you guys are biased because you're on a, a network that does every single Nicolas Cage movie. I thought they did it well, but I was like, wow, you're actually recreating one of the iconic scenes from the 1931 movie. And I'm not mad about it. Like, I thought they did that surprisingly well. Yeah, that to me was kind of the best stuff. It's weird. Like going into it, I didn't really know what to expect with like a modern day retelling of Dracula. Is that what we're going to get? And so the story we got, I got to admit, like it threw me for a loop. However, mm -hmm. I love Cage's Dracula, not just because I love Cage, but I love what he was doing with Dracula as a little vampire's kiss. But it was also a little like we didn't get that London After Midnight movie performance, you know, with Lon Chaney. Mm -hmm. So, like, it seems like he was trying to maybe give us that or his interpretation of, of what that would have been with the teeth and, and the yeah. top hat. And I love what Nicholas Holt was doing, too. You know, it was a very interesting take on Renfield. After watching the movie, I was like, 
man, if these two guys just remade Dracula 31, like that would have been incredible. Yeah. You know, like, is that what I maybe what I really <laughs> wanted? Possibly. But like what we got was fun and cool and, and you know, modern. And, and I like Aquafina. She's she was fun, too. So like. You know, not not at all what I was really expecting. Yeah, but I, had, I still had a good time. With I came out of it thinking, all right, this isn't the Renfield movie I would have made. The idea of of making Renfield kind of a superhero is just so <laughs> batshit insane. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's one of those ideas that, like, if people really don't like it, it's 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 hard to blame them, right? Like, I'm not yeah. gonna hold it hold it against anybody who didn't like Renfield, right? But I I was like, okay. This is a completely wild idea. Let's go along for the ride. I do ultimately enjoy a lot of what uh, they did in the movie. I liked a lot of the practical effects. Uh, I think I, I saw an early screening of it before Mike got to see it. And I, I think I remember texting you, Mike, saying, Mike, you're going to like Cage. <laughs> Cage is really good in this movie. Uh, despite what you might think about everything else, Cage is incredible. It's a movie I definitely want to see again. You know, I'm excited to to revisit it for the show. Now, we won't get to it for a while because we release monthly and, you know, so it'll take us some time, but it'll be nice to have that time in between having seen it in the theater and then revisiting it for the show. I'm curious to see how I feel about it, you know, with, with that much time in between. But yeah, I, I think it's really fun. But, it's you know, a, at the same time, if people don't like <laughs> it, I'm not going to hold it against them. Yeah, it's a solid B movie. It's, it's yeah. you know, you sat down, you, you ate the popcorn. You let your eyes go wide for an hour and a half, and then you went on with your day. Kind yeah, of it's it, it's not boring, you know. I think right. um, uh, who's the director, Chris McKay. You know, like he had a bold vision, and um, I've always championed uh, bold swings. You know, whether whether because <laughs> anything that's that's that nuts is going to be divisive, and so um, I have a lot of respect for him for taking this idea and really swinging for the fence. I don't know if it holds up as a direct sequel to the 1931 Dracula the way he may have intended, right. but it's still really fun. <laughs> it, it feels yeah. like maybe like the 20th movie after, right? Like, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, I, think I think they that, did a good job with like the dependency issue subject as well, and yeah. like the the him going to group and and all of that, and like not just having like this demanding boss, but you know a lot of people in life having like uh, toxic relationships and things. So mm -hmm. uh, you know it was interesting how they were trying to. I think that you know something we were sort of alluding to earlier about how sort of malleable like this content is is that like that is something I feel like pretty original that they were able to go back in mind and be like, oh, he's always, it's a master and a servant and all this. Like, how can we sort of expand on that? I think they did a pretty good job of of mining that that subject. And so we're actually recording on the day when you have a, a, a new episode coming out after after a hiatus. You know, you guys had gone through the, the universal canon. What are listeners in store for now with this second season, so to speak? So well, we're uh, going to shift and become a Batman 66 podcast. I'm going to take a major bat turn and uh, no, I'm just joking. But, but I mean, it just, that is a kind of a open joke between us and the listeners that, that Batman 66 came up so much during the initial run that Dan yeah. and I seriously sat down and considered for a day of doing a Batman show. <laughs> it's it's yeah. I mean, I would say it's still within the realm of possibility if we can find the time. This podcast was conceived as a limited run. I was going to just do the original, the original movies. And then, you know, at a certain point um, we got so much listener feedback, you know, we started getting emails coming in and, we saw the numbers, the download numbers, and I thought, all right, if people are really enjoying the show, then, you know, let's just keep going, you know, so we'll, we'll keep going with that. My other podcast, as 
uh, should just be a limited show. So maybe when that's over, we can consider uh, a second show, Mike and I. But as for this season, we started with uh, the 1979 Dracula with Frank Langella, Donald Pleasance, and Laurence Olivier. And then um, we're going to be catching up with Universal. We're staying with the studio, for better or worse. We want to stay with the studio that created these monsters, follow them all the way up to the present day, and then start looking around, okay, where do we go next? Maybe we look at Hammer. Maybe we look at you know, other uh, studios' versions, you know, because at some point I would like to talk about Coppola's Dracula movie on the show. I would like to talk about Monster Squad. I would like to talk about, you know, all these other Dracula or Frankenstein movies that weren't produced by Universal. So I feel like it's a good idea to to finish what we started with the studio and then kind of see where we want to go next from there. The new season will be... uh, maybe a little controversial i made i made a decision that felt right uh listeners may not in, may not agree with me but uh, i'm curious to see how the, re- the response is or what the response is once uh once we get into that territory i don't want to reveal like everything we're going to cover but um suffice to say we're, we're we're sticking with universal through uh to the present day it might be controversial but i think uh, ultimately it'll be a lot of fun right yeah. I, I, that's what i'm excited for we're just trying to have fun and like sometimes we do get like academic about things and like that's fun too you know but as dan said like it felt right to just keep going with universal and what they were doing with these monsters and even though there was what like a 30-year gap where they didn't really do anything and other studios took hold and did stuff like it's cool to see like now that they're back like what did they do like what is this phase uh the color universal monster movies (laughs) (laughs) um they get kind of nuts so we'll see what happens. But yeah, like with Dan, like I'm in it for the long haul. Like I love monster movies. I love other monsters. I'd love to one day talk about like King Kong. I'd like to, you know, go back and talk about the universal horror movies that didn't have these monsters in them. Like there's just so much to explore that we can just keep like going back and forth. Yeah. And in terms of um, the academic side of our show, like, let me just tell you this. When I when I conceived this show originally, I did not conceive this to be a like a film history show. You know, we're we're just fans. We're not experts. But the more I read about how these movies came to be, what was happening at the studio at the time, all the uh, turnover and the leadership there and the, the money problems and, you know, how these mo- how these monsters saved the studio more than one time. Uh, yeah it became so fascinating and I wanted to share it and and put these movies in in some sort of context. That's sort of a happy accident how that happened. I don't consider myself a historian by any stretch of the imagination, but it is maybe my favorite part of doing the show is getting to learn about that stuff and then share it with Mike and then share it with our listeners. You can find The Monsters That Made Us at cageclub.me slash monsters or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. Next is my conversation with Edward Pettit from the Rosenbach Museum. In 2020, he launched Sundays with Dracula online as a way to continue the Rosenbach's programming without hosting in-person events. To start off, Ed, can you tell us about the Rosenbach Museum? Rosenbach Museum and Library is a historic house and rare book uh, collection that was founded by the Rosenbach brothers, uh, Philip Rosenbach and A.S.W. Rosenbach. And A.S.W. Rosenbach, Dr. Rosenbach, we call him, was a rare book dealer and collector and was really the most famous rare book dealer in the world for the first half of the 20th century. I mean, if you were at all interested in 
rare books. So uh, you would you would have known who he was. And he made himself that way on purpose by paying the highest prices for manuscripts and books and making sure he got the the requisite publicity for all of that. When the brothers died, they they willed and they both died in the in the the 1950s and they left their the rest of their company stock and their personal collection to be a uh, public museum uh, that people could come and see these things. And we've been there ever since on uh, uh, 2008, 2010 Delancey Street in Philadelphia. I've been with the Rosenbach since 2017, and I came in to expand the program portfolio to really make the make the Rosenbach a program centric place where we were really opening up to as many people as possible to come in and engage with our collections in some way. And we were very successful at doing that. We were doing like almost 200 programs a year in total. And then pandemic hit, they weren't going to lay me off, which was nice. So I had to, <laughs> I had to earn my paycheck and figure out how to do these things online. And I moved all our courses. We also do literary courses and I moved all the, all the courses online and I had to come up with an idea for programs. This was in April and I realized that Dracula as a novel uh, begins on May 3rd. Well, the Rosenbach connection with it is we have Bram Stoker's notes for Dracula. It's about 100 pages of research notes, early outlines, character lists, all kinds of ideas that he had that he had been compiling over the course of the seven years that he researched and wrote Dracula. And we have those notes at the Rosenbach and lots of other Dracula first editions and things like that. I thought that since the novel is 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 all in letters and journal entries and they're all dated it begins on May 3rd. It would be great if we could start this on May 3rd, this online show where I would just talk about one chapter at a time with a co-host, and then we would have an audience watching us. To make it all perfect is the novel is 27 chapters, and it's basically 27 weeks long. The starts on May 3rd and ends the first week. On November 6th is the day that Dracula is, is uh, finally, you know, killed, truly dead. It just all fit into this perfectly packaged show that we could do one chapter a week. So I rounded up some people that I knew who were very much into Dracula, and I got a couple others, and we went ahead with it. And it was... I mean, it was less than a month to put it together. There was no marketing. It was just promotion. We just like put it together and sent it out on our social media that, hey, here's this show and word spread. And it was the right time because people at that specific time were looking for something to do online. I thought I might have, you know, 10 people the first session and we had over 100. It just took off from there and... And we maintained a strong audience all the way through. People stuck with it the whole time, joined us late. My thinking is always at the Rosenbach and coming in as a place that wasn't doing a ton of programming to let's just try as much as possible and see what works. And so I had that I had that leeway to do that. I didn't have to test it out. I didn't have to do any kind of research to figure out if this kind of thing was going to work. We knew we needed to do some things and we did them and, and it helped us considerably. The geographic reach of that show too was was what began. And now we've done successive shows and we have members from all over the world. I mean, people that not just watch the shows, 
but have become paid members of the Rosenbach, even though they can't visit the Rosenbach because of this work that we're doing, which is really great. I was going over some of the old episodes. Uh, you mentioned particularly at the end of uh, the Dracula series, just how amazing the interactions were between the viewers and the presenters. One of the things that made the Sundays with Dracula special is that it was the pandemic and people were isolated and lonely and really wanted to make connections with other people. So by the end of the show, it was a bit teary, you know, and we had to sign off and, and ended. It was it was it was emotional. It was emotional for for the co-hosts and myself. It was emotional for people watching it. That was very special for the pandemic. So when I had to then continue the show and do more of them, I wondered if that would continue. And it and it has continued. There is a real need for people to join these communities where they feel valued and uh i mean they, they want to join a community where they're interested in something but they want it to be a community they want to be able to interact with others in this and know that you know these are my people and they're out there and here we are together doing something communal the bigger thing that i that i think goes on is that humans as a species need to tell stories and to do that we need to be together. We need each other. We need each other in groups to to relate to each other, to figure out who we are. So this is the kind of thing that taps into that deep-rooted thing that goes on in all humans, that, that to connect, and especially about stories, which is what we do. It was probably the closest we could get to fireside storytelling was for all of us to be in the chat. I mean, and that's the way it begins with humans. They're all sitting around the fire and, and they're telling stories to each other. And that has that continues to this day. And while this show, while the Biblioventure shows aren't aren't me reading out stories or 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 doing those kinds of things, it's talking about the stories and how they're valuable to us. And it fulfills the same place for people, especially because reading has become such a solitary venture. Um, you know, over the last few hundred years, reading went from a communal thing to gradually more and more and more solitary. And but you still need connection when you read. So this is this is where you get the connection after you read something. And the Rosenbach has done communal readings before. So we've done two Moby Dick marathons, 25 hours to read all of Moby Dick. We did a Dracuthon in 2022 where we read all of Dracula from beginning to end overnight. For 2023, we scaled back on Dracuthon and decided just to make it a five-hour program still a long program for most people <laughs> we had professional uh actors from the philadelphia area come in and read the first four chapters of the novel which works exceptionally well because it's jonathan harker in dracula's castle so it's a contained story in itself and every year on bloomsday we gather in front of the rosenbach uh from 11 in the morning till eight at night and read selections from ulysses all day long people loved it when we when we went back in person and could come and, and assemble again and do those things there are some people who, who just still love to do the online stuff their method of connecting is okay even though it's online and i think that Sometimes people make a difference there and think that, well, that's not really connecting. Well, it is really connecting. I mean, if as long as, I mean, you and I are talking now, whether this was by video, whether this was just audio, we are connecting and that fulfills that need. Now, some people need a physical need too, but I, I find that that's not the case. 
if the in-person stuff and that and that being together in one place was really that important, all of this online stuff would have started to go away for us here, and it hasn't at all. I mean, the mm-hmm. the shows, each successive BiblioVenture show has become even stronger and had a greater audience to it. You know, from Frankenstein, and then we did Jane Eyre, and then we did Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, and now we're doing Sherlock Holmes stories. The audience is continuing to grow, so... It was just special for me when we first got together and got to do this stuff. For me, it was just meeting people that some of them I had gotten to know pretty well over the course of of, of Sundays with Dracula, but some of them I had never, like I didn't know, they were just in the audience. And so mm-hmm. having them come meet me was pretty special. Having these conversations online with so many experts and so many people talking about it in in the chat and on Facebook, have these conversations shed any new light on the works for you? Have you seen them in different perspectives or uh, uncovered different angles? Every week, because it's perspectives. I only have, well, I mean, I have more than just my own perspective because I do so much research and and work within, you know, the, the, within the field, but it's still as a reader, it's me. And then I get in on the show, I get a co-host or somebody and I get to hear there what they think. But then going back after the shows and reading all the, the live chat that goes on, I absolutely come away with different, uh, not just learning things about uh, the stories that I hadn't figured on to begin with, but just the whole broadening of of how i think about stories and how they engage other people is it's it's always there i mean it happens every single week i'm i'm going over the live chat this morning from a show i did last night and people mentioned things and i was like ah i wish i had you know i wish i could because it's real hard to engage in the live chat and have the conversation with a co-host so i don't usually i usually read my live chat afterwards and it was it was like ah i would you know because what the points they brought up i thought were were so great and i would have loved to have on the show and that happens every single week that i learn things or if i don't learn some specific you know thing about something then i at least get this other view of a text that sometimes inside me i think i know it inside out and you ne- you you can only know something from your own perspective so that's why it's always important Many of our regular listeners are music collectors. Uh, We have a Discord server where there are a lot of conversations about who has the original vinyl, cassettes, 8-tracks, VHS, uh, memorabilia. Uh, With that in mind, I'm wondering, what can you tell us about first editions of books? Beyond just the academic aspect, what makes the first edition or those early books so special? It's a fascinating question because I think you would get different answers from different people depending on, you know, there's like there's there's no way to really define why people want something, like why something is collectible, why someone would desire an object because it was the first of the object. Especially if you look at books, it just print more and you I mean you have the same book made the same exact way but people want that original the the book that came first for me it's because i was a kid who grew up in philadelphia in the 1970s uh when the whole bicentennial thing happened in america and in philadelphia especially because you know this was you know where the 
declaration was written and all that early founding father stuff. I had an idea from as a child that that original space and those original places were very important to what we have now today. It was, it was just natural to me, but I, but I somehow think maybe it was, that's a natural feeling to me because of how I grew up and where I grew up. I'm not sure other people, it would become just a natural thing. When I look at a first edition of Dracula it's automatically special because that was the first point of contact with people, with, with the first readers and how they experienced it. I'm always striving to, to recreate original reading practices and how some how people first encountered texts and, and, and to see what that was like. I'm always interested in first time readers and envy them most of the time of books that, you know, I know really well. And, then like this if you like this is the first time you read Frankenstein tell me like what do you think i mean that kind of thing is really valuable to me in the work that i do but it's it, but it's also it's just why i like this kind of stuff there's no reason why somebody would want to pay a gazillion dollars for a first edition of anything like why what why does why do people want to spend over a million dollars for the first folio of shakespeare when you can barely read it because of the the old format and the text and and the way it is and but the connection with that it is an original work and how it connects you with the people who first encountered it and the people who first made it it's like tangible inside and i don't know if anybody has ever really defined it in a way that works across the board for everything that's been interesting too so far for sherlock mondays we're getting pdfs of the short stories as they originally appeared in the strand so we're getting the illustrations the original typeset and how they were blocked out on the pages especially with illustrated works I do a lot of stuff in the 19th century, obviously, and a lot of stuff with Dickens. And illustrations were the way people encountered text to begin with, or frequently encountered text to begin with, and they were very important to to them. If a book's a bestseller now, the first question people want to know is, when is it going to be made into a movie or a TV series? But do you need that? Like, can't you just read it? Why does it have to be visual? Humans seem to like seem to want and need visuals for things. I think maybe if books were illustrated, they would crave a film version less. But we're not connected to that anymore. Books, you know, stop being illustrated. A lot of books stop being illustrated in the 20th century in publication. Not completely, and books do still have illustrations, but not at all to the extent that they did in the 19th century. I was wondering if you could shed light on this. One of the people you had on a few weeks ago mentioned the game. And if I remember this correctly, it's when scholars or Sherlockians yeah. write about these stories. They write about them as if they were real, as if Watson uh, was a real person actually writing them. And the game is is begun by a biblical scholar, a real biblical scholar, Ronald Knox uh, in England, where he wrote about the Sherlock Holmes stories kind of tongue-in-cheekly as well, but also knowing that the way I'm presenting this is a legitimate way in which we pursue other things like biblical literature and how does it how, what does it look like when we apply it to fiction 
it was immediately adopted by a bunch of these early Sherlockians like Christopher Morley and people like that, where you only talk about the stories assuming that Sherlock Holmes was a real character and these incidents all happened and Watson was actually writing about them and publishing them. And the stories themselves lend that to like reading because they talk about how Watson is writing these cases down and publishing them. And then you're reading them. Like the first readers were reading them. I used to include a question in a survey I gave to new students back when I used to teach college. And, and, and it was a whole list of things that I wanted to see kind of what their cultural literacy was like in, in, in literature that we were going to study or, or that had been traditionally studied. And some of the questions were about fictional characters, like, you know, uh, was, uh, you know, to see if they knew, well, not only knew who Robinson Crusoe was, but whether he was a real person. I'd ask them if, you know, uh, uh, Vito Corleone from The Godfather was a real person. Uh, mm -hmm. And I asked the people if Sherlock Holmes was. And I think Sherlock got more yes, he was real answers than the other ones did. It would be perfectly reasonable for people to assume that he was uh, some kind of detective in the late 19th century and there were these stories about him and and then there was all kinds of movies and TV. Of course, that's fiction, but mm -hmm. that there was probably a real person. The stories themselves, I think, lend themselves to that interpretation that they could be real. Doyle works very hard to ground his stories in the real world that they're set in uh, for his original you know, audience. Um, just as Dracula does the same thing. Bram Stoker does the same thing with Dracula. He really tries to ground that novel into real, very specific day-to-day -day events and occurrences that would happen for people in 1897. So the game, in assuming this, once you assume that they're real characters, then you wind up with all kinds of problems because Doyle doesn't care about <laughs> making chronologies work. So things are off all over the place. And the biggest example is Watson's wound. He shot in the shoulder in the first story. And then the next story, he talks about how it was a leg wound. Doyle just didn't, it was, he had written that, you know, three years ago and didn't exactly remember when he wrote it. And there was no reason for him to think about it. He didn't even think at that time that he was creating a character that was going to continue. That kind of stuff didn't matter. So how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile real events that are going on in, in the world at the time that those Sherlock stories are going on? How do they reconcile those with things that happen in the story? And it winds up being extraordinarily fruitful in understanding the stories and what's going on, because you wind up learning all this context for what's happening at the time that they're being written the problem with playing the game is that it ignores Arthur Conan Doyle's um, creativity. I don't play the game because mm -hmm. I need to acknowledge that um, when you play the game, he's just a literary executor. He is just kind of like the agent that places Watson's stories. There are questions that I can't answer if I play the game. You know, why is Doyle making these choices that he's making and writing these stories? I can't ask those questions if I'm assuming he's that these are real things that are happening. 
But the game is fun to play. But for my purposes of doing the show, I can't necessarily do it. And I've seen people do these things because you wind up with different answers. Now, it's just the, the, the great annotated edition of Sherlock Holmes now is uh, Leslie Klinger's annotated in three giant volumes where it's just, you know, filled with marginal, you know, notes about all the stuff. And he completely plays the game that all this stuff happened but it never gets in the way of how much you learn out of, you know, those annotations for that stuff. But what you don't learn for that is about Doyle's process of creation and how he put things together. That's something you can't learn from playing the game. And that's I, I and I like to put that out there out front too when I do these. As part of this episode, I was talking to the guys who do the Monsters That Made Us podcast and they had gone through all the universal horror movies. When I started watching those a few years ago, you know, I saw the gaps in between those movies because in the same way they didn't care about that continuity. And what became fun was filling in those blanks and coming up with the backstories about what must have happened in between these movies. As we're talking, uh, muted on my TV right now is uh, The Wolfman. And, uh, oh, no, it's not. No, The Black Cat's on right now with Karloff oh, and Lugosi, okay. which is an absolutely yeah. fabulous one. The Wolfman's on next. It's Halloween. That we're taping just old horror movies are running on my tv and sometimes the sound on sometimes it's off i would have yeah, continued so with monsters doing biblio ventures had there been enough had there been more at the rosenbeck now we do have a first edition of uh, jekyll and hyde so that could happen someday but i would i could do monsters you know full time if ever allowed so as we're recording this we're only a few weeks into sherlock mondays uh, and it's the first one where we're reading disconnected short stories and novellas so to give a plug, uh, this is something a listener can jump into for the first time every week because you won't be five chapters behind. You know, you'll come in on a short story. Uh, has covering a different story every week as opposed to a novel affected the format or how it's received? Not yet, but and we'll see how it goes. When you're doing a novel, uh, you know, in a chapter a week or a couple chapters a week, halfway through, two thirds through, very few people will join. I hope that because it's a story a week, People won't feel like, oh, I have to watch all the other episodes. You don't. You can jump right in and do this story and go from there. At any time, you can go back and 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 watch episodes or just listen to episodes because we're doing Sherlock Money's also as an audio podcast this time. I hope that it will encourage people who only discover us now, who only discover us next year as the, as the series is continuing because it's 30 weeks long that they will just jump in whenever they you know want because you only got to do the one story a week. You can turn on any soap opera on television and within what like 2 days, you know what's going on with like everybody in the cast. But with Sherlock it's even easier. One story a week. It doesn't matter if you know what happened in last week's story because they're not continuous in that way. Do you want to say anything about any upcoming plans or is that too early to to give anything out or we have some ideas of where we want to go next. I won't make that decision until, you know, there's like a two months left in Sherlock and we know that, okay, this will be the next thing that we can continue with. And I have to invest my life in it, especially the weekly show is it's sometimes more than half the work I do every week for my job is all about putting on the show. So I have to know that I can live with this subject. I mean, we did Jane Eyre for 26 weeks. 
I have to know that, oh, yeah, I can talk about this novel for 26 weeks in a row. I can talk about Sherlock stories for 30 weeks in a row. I have no issue with that. But I have to make sure I have to know that ahead of time that we will choose things that that people are really interested in all the way through. And and but I have to be interested in it, too. Did you do Dracula, too? Did you ever bother to do Jane Eyre or, or Pride and Prejudice or were you only interested in the early ones? Those I didn't do because the pandemic was up and I started playing shows again. So for a few months, uh, something had to go as I readjusted to regular gigs. What was your favorite show and why? Definitely Frankenstein. Uh, Dracula, I have to go back because I tried reading Dracula uh, chapter by chapter each week and it was was no good for me. (laughs) I couldn't keep it all in my head. So for Frankenstein, I read the whole book in December and then I reread every chapter. Uh, Just uncovering the travelogue aspect, that blew right past me the first time. Uh, the themes of obsession, which went into the movie, I really keyed into that more. And it was really nice, like getting the full feel, having the ghoul guys on to give the historical perspective. I, I remember so vividly, I think it was Mary who mentioned how there was this idea of a perceived crisis in masculinity in the 19th century. And it's like, it's kind of those things where you're like, oh, oh, like, like you hear about now, you know, and it's comforting to realize in a way that we've gone through these things, no matter how arduous they are, there's some sort of like roadmap to this because we did it 150 years ago. Uh, And it's, it's great just getting those unexpected insights. It's the one that I want to redo. I want to redo Frankenstein longer because Mm -hmm. the way we set it up originally, we, we only had that spring to do it. So January to whenever, and and I didn't think people were going to be, we're going to do another 27, 28 week show is actually what we did with Dracula. And mm-hmm. I was wrong. I should have just done it as, you know, a 28 week show on Frankenstein and did, you know, mostly one chapter a week, but we didn't think it was going to work. I felt like there was so much we could have done with Frankenstein that we just never got the opportunity to talk about. I mean, I'd love to do Dracula to redo it because, I mean, hell, it was just learning Zoom. It was so clunky. The conversation wasn't clunky, but the show itself is clunky, and I would love to be able to to redo all of that. But Frankenstein, I miss. It was because it was winter time too. Because that's like that's sort of the best time to read Frankenstein is when you're all hunkered down. Anyway, your imagination really runs wild at that point. Well, thanks again. Uh, I'll leave it to you. Uh, let's see what comes on after. Uh, what did you say you had on the Black Cat? It's one of my favorites. It is one of those uh, overlooked universals. I think when people realize, oh, it's not really about Poe. No, it's it, <laughs> but it's about. It's it's a, it's like a, almost like a perfect horror movie and and about the kind of the horror that came after World War One and mm. these two it's Karloff and Lugosi are both really great in it. It's beautiful in this kind of these weird modernist sets that they have for this house that they're in. It's a really cool movie. The three Paul ones that Lugosi did for Universal, Murders in the Room Org, Black Cat and the Raven, are all exceptionally good. Murders is practically pre-code, so it's really disturbing the, the, the kind of things that they can do in it. None of them are actual Poe adaptations. They just do whatever the heck they want to do with them, but they work really well all through. And the Raven, the Raven is about a guy who's obsessed with Poe and, you know, is crazy because of it. I'm surprised to hear they did something that meta back then. It sounds like something they do now. Yeah, those early Poe universals are are, are, are excellent, really good. Yeah.
The program was so popular that Edward followed it with Sundays with Frankenstein a few months later and then Sundays with Jane Eyre and then Austin Mondays. The current course, Sherlock Mondays, explores the classic Sherlock Holmes stories by author Conan Doyle. Running from October 2023 through April of 2024, this series is the first to feature a short story almost every week as opposed to one novel for the entire run. Sherlock Mondays is free to attend online, and you can sign up at rosenbach.org slash events slash Sherlock dash Mondays. And you can also find these episodes in the previous BiblioVentures on the Rosenbach's Facebook page. Well, that's all for now. Thanks again to Dan Cologne, Mike Manzi, and Edward Pettit for joining me. You can find links to their shows, as well as Della Chase's music, in our show notes. And as always, now it's your turn. Let us know what you thought of this episode. While you're at it, tell me your story through a favorite song, a book you love, or a movie you can watch over and over again. You can reach us at glasshousespodcast at gmail.com, and we're on Facebook, Instagram, and whatever we're calling Twitter these days, at Glasshouses, a Billy Joel podcast. We also have a Discord server where we discuss Billy's music, along with other artists in general chat. Michael and I also host monthly watch parties there, where we watch and comment on classic shows, music videos, and more. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform, please give us a five-star review or favorable rating. Every five-star review and favorable rating tells those mighty algorithms that we're a podcast of merit, so they serve us up to more potential listeners. It's a fast, easy, and free way to help us tell our story to more people. But for now, I'm either going to put on a record, read a mystery story, or watch a classic black and white movie. I'll see you next time.